good to be together tonight. I did not know that I would be preaching uh, this evening until last night. Uh, due to Danny's illness, Jason called and asked if I had something uh, ready, and it was kind of ironic or interesting. I was actually, when he called, working on this PowerPoint uh, for uh, some presentations I'm actually making next month, and so hopefully it worked out pretty good, maybe not for Danny, uh, but this is kind of going to essentially be a second part or follow-up to a study I gave a few uh, weeks ago on a Wednesday night on macroevolution versus the laws of science and how macroevolution violates several laws of science, a law of cause and effect, causality, laws of thermodynamics, laws of probability, statistically impossible, law of biogenesis, uh, kinds produced after their own kind. We talked about how it violates laws of science which aren't violated. Uh, which is a significant problem and dilemma for the theory of macroevolution. And so uh, tonight, uh, we want to talk about macroevolution versus genetics, think DNA, genetic code, and the fossil record. And before we get into that material, I want to go back and mention just a few of the slides in our introduction last time, some of this front matter, uh, to go over real, real briefly. Uh, why does it matter? Why should we study this? By all this apologetic stuff, what, what's the point? Why study macroevolution? Well, this is uh, implications um, given by an evolutionist, actually. If Darwinism, macroevolution is true, then there are five inescapable implications. Number one, there's no evidence for God. God doesn't exist. That's the first and biggest implication. There's no life after death. There's no absolute foundation for right and wrong. There's no ultimate meaning or purpose in your life, and people don't really have free will. Uh, it's just survival of the fittest. Uh, you don't really have control over that. Really shouldn't be consequences then for anything that you do. And so, obviously, this speaks to uh, why we're here, uh, who we are, where we're going, who we belong to. And there's essentially two possibilities. If you eliminate uh, alien seeding, which we did last time, there's two possibilities to explain human origins, macroevolution or special creation. And so we talked about why I intentionally titled these studies macroevolution instead of evolution, because there's a difference between macro and microevolution. Think macro on a large scale, macroeconomics. Micro is a smaller scale. And so microevolution is supported by the evidence and doesn't conflict with what the Bible teaches. That's variation within kinds, not one kind becoming a different kind through evolution, but just variation, what we often refer to as adaptation. You know, there's 200 different breeds of dogs, and you can breed cows to produce milk better and things like that. That's microevolutionary changes. Contrast, macro is going from one kind to another, which isn't supported by the evidence we'll see tonight, and we've seen previously, and conflicts with what is clearly taught in the book of Genesis. Um, and so what evolutionists, macroevolutionists will do uh, is they'll blur the distinction between micro and macro. And so in your child's textbooks, and talk, they'll say, see, here is proof evolution occurs. And the question is, what kind of evolution are we talking about? Because they'll put forth examples of microevolution, not one kind becoming another kind, but adaptation or change and say, see, this is proof of evolution. Microevolution, not macroevolution. So it's a very important distinction. We talked about how a person's spirituality and, and uh, how religious somebody is Research has shown is tied uh, to a great degree on whether or not they believe in special creation or macroevolution, and that the research bears out that uh, believing in theistic macroevolution 
trying to harmonize macroevolution with belief in God is a gateway to skepticism and ultimately atheism. And so very dangerous. And I would argue a convincing case could be made that the decline of religion in the world and specifically in our country can be tied to, to a great degree, to the propagation and advocacy of Darwin's macroevolution as much as anything else. So that's why this is so important. So we talked about is Genesis literal? The style is literal. It's a historical account of real events. Jesus and the other inspired New Testament writers and apostles quoted all but three books in the New Testament quote from the book of, and referred to the book of Genesis. So if the first book in the Bible isn't credible, isn't reliable, then it undermines everything else. So that's why Genesis matters. So what about theistic macroevolution? Can you believe in God and, and believe in macroevolution? What about theistic macroevolution? Many problems we noted, uh, did man rise or fall? Macroevolution has man eventually rising. The Bible teaches he fell uh, in the beginning, the original sin. And that if man didn't fall, there's no need for a Savior. That's a very serious implication. The problem with Eve... Uh, the Bible teaches that they are male and female from the beginning. Macroevolution says the sexes evolved over time. Jesus said that male and female existed from the very beginning of creation. Evolution teaches currently, the timeline keeps expanding, the universe is 14 billion years old. Man arrived on the scene eventually or around 2 million years ago. So on a 24-hour clock, that would be like two seconds before midnight. That's a long time from the very beginning. Uh, we've noticed other, other uh, issues with this theory. Some try to harmonize macroevolution with a Genesis account by saying the days represent eons of times because time is nothing to God. Well, you look at the word yom in Hebrew, uh, not what it meant, not how the Hebrews interpret it by keeping the Sabbath every Saturday, a literal 24-hour period. And there's serious implications and issues if you believe that those days represented millions of years. For example, plants were created the day before the sun. How'd plants survive without sunlight for millions of years? How'd birds survive without insects for millions of years? What about man being given dominion over all of God's creation? How could man exercise dominion over all of God's creation if so much of that creation supposedly went extinct like dinosaurs millions of years before humans even existed? And then again, the Bible makes it clear God rested on the Sabbath day, on the seventh day. He finished His creation. Macroevolution asserts that creation is ongoing. So... We're going to begin by looking at macroevolution versus genetics. In Darwin's day, they had no idea, uh, no way of seeing the complexity that exists within the membrane of a cell. Darwinian macroevolution claims that billions of years ago, life began with a simple cell that evolved through natural selection and mutations we're going to talk about here in a moment to result in all the plant and animal life that populate our planet. But... That was before so much has been discovered about DNA and genetic code. And so Darwin was thinking a single cell was very simple, not very complex, when in fact we've discovered there's nothing about life, any part of life, that's simple. It's all complex. The DNA in a single cell contains the equivalent of 600,000 pages of information. In that simple single cell, that's like 10 to the 12th bits of information. There's nothing simple about life at all. One person described single cell, a single cell organism like a high-tech factory complete with artificial languages and decoding systems, central memory banks that store and retrieve impressive amounts of information, precision control systems that regulate the automatic assembly of components, proofreading and quality control mechanisms that safeguard against errors, 
Assembly systems that use principles of prefabrication and modular construction and a complete replication system that allows the organism to duplicate itself at bewildering speeds. Amazon factories have nothing on just a simple single cell factory. So what about natural selection? That's a misnomer because if naturalism is true, without God, there is no selection. What's the intelligence behind selection? There's no natural selection without somebody selecting without information and a mind, a power behind the selecting. In living systems, the guidance needed to assemble everything comes from DNA, which is essentially a, a microprocessor. DNA works hand-in-hand -hand with RNA to direct the correct sequencing of amino acids. You have to put a lot of amino acids together in just the right sequence to make a protein molecule. And you need a lot of protein molecules put together and just the right sequence to eventually arrive at a living cell. That's how complicated it is. You can't get letters in order. Think about this in the cell. Think about the information like letters. You can't get letters arranged in the proper sequence into words, and words arranged in the proper sequence to get sentences without intelligence. We have letters like this that are magnetic at home that you can put on the refrigerator or the dishwasher, and if I came home and saw take out the trash or something on that, I wanted to see, well, that was a big bang, that was a big accident. Who did, you know, there's an intelligence behind that. Uh, maybe not Kinsley, uh, but Kyson or Kelsey or Lincoln, there's an intelligence behind that. We understand that principle. Remember the name of Michael Behe, who will quote several times tonight, said that the probability of linking together just 100 amino acids, trying to get to that, uh, eventually that living cell, to create one protein molecule by chance is the same as taking a blindfolded man in the Sahara Desert, you see here in Africa how large it is, the chance that that blindfolded man would select one grain of sand that had been marked three times is that probability. Another man said it was like a tornado going through a junkyard and assembling a Boeing 747. We talked about statistics last time. It's impossible. It's not just improbable, it's impossible. And so we look at the definition of natural selection. Webster uh, gives this definition, a natural process that results in the survival and reproductive success of individuals or groups best adjusted to their environment and that leads to the perpetuation of genetic qualities best suited to that particular environment. Uh, the title even of Darwin's a famous book on the origin of species by means of natural selection. So natural selection is essentially, you know, survival of the fittest. The idea that nature selects those species that are most fit or suited for an environment. Those that aren't well suited for that environment or don't relocate to a different environment die. It's natural selection. And Darwin believed that natural selection could be the means by which evolution could occur. But while natural selection might try to work to screen out the unfit, natural selection has no ability to create new information, which is required in macroevolution. The essence of Darwinism lies in a single phrase, natural selection is the creative force of evolutionary change. No one denies that selection will play a negative role in eliminating the unfit. Darwinian theories require that it create the fit as well, and that's the problem we're going to talk about. Information can't spontaneously generate itself. We talked about Spontaneous generation of life violates laws of science. 
First law of third world dynamics and others. Never been proven. Always been disproven. What about the spontaneous generation, not only of life, but of information? Because there has to be information to have life. Where did the information come from? Evolution, macroevolution requires a spontaneous generation of information. The origin of life question is really not just about the origin of life. It's really just as much about the origin of information. Where did the information come from? The question, how did life originate, which interests us all, is inseparably linked to the question, where did the information come from? All evolutionary views are fundamentally unable to answer this crucial question. There is no, no known law of physics able to create information from nothing. We read this quote last time. Every living thing sprang from some parental genetic information. Law of biogenesis that God instituted. That's a fact. You don't get genetic information. You don't get these, these genes without parents that pass them down. And so evolutionists and the theory of evolution and seeking to try to uh, describe and explain the survival of the fittest can't explain the arrival of the fittest. How'd life get here? How'd information get here? So enter neo-Darwinism. Neo means new or modified. Here's the updated, revised uh, theory, neo-Darwinism, which states basically you have to have natural selection plus mutations. Natural selection filters out the unfit. The mutations are what get you the new information, the changed information. Random mutations that could accidentally, improbably, impossibly create new species over time, and natural selection would then eliminate the unfit, leaving the better, more evolved creatures. But again, same problem. Where the information to do that come from? Mutations do not produce new information. And information comes from intelligence. Information comes from a mind. Not from, how, do, how does information get into matter? Into something that's physical? I love this illustration here, uh, this analogy given by a man by the name of Sanford. He likens the genome, human genome, which is essentially the entire set of DNA instructions that's found in a cell. All the DNA instructions, all that genetic code is the genome. He likens it to an instruction manual for making human beings. That's what it does. Instruction manual for making human beings. In his analogy, letters correspond to nucleotides. Clumps of nucleotides correspond to words which combine to form genes, which are like the chapters in that manual, which combine to form chromosome, which are the volumes of the manual, which combine to form the whole genome, the library itself, all the genetic information. And so think about a book, uh, writing or printing a book. When you print or retype or copy something, there can be errors. That would be what a mutation would be, an error in replicating DNA. Uh, sometimes appear. And so different types of errors. The Letters could be jarbled up. Uh, duplication could occur. The same word, the, the, in a sentence, repeated twice, duplicated. Translocation, you could get words or letters or sentences or paragraphs relocated to different parts of the book by accident. Deletion could occur, where you accidentally delete a letter or delete a word or delete a sentence or a paragraph, etc. So that, that is the concept uh, regarding mutations. But note that though there are changes, there's no new information. There's not a new sentence in all those scenarios. The problem with macroevolutionary theory is that it requires a new sentence, new chapters, <laughs> sequels of information that it cannot provide. Mutations seem unable to produce entirely new forms of life. 
Another quote here by macroevolutionist, the mutation doesn't produce major new raw material. You don't make a new species by mutating the species. That's a common idea people have, that evolution is due to random mutations. A mutation is not the cause of evolutionary change. Mutations, by definition, are an error, a mistake, an accident, and the replication of DNA. And the question is, are those beneficial or detrimental? They can be good, bad, or indifferent. When you eliminate the indifferent ones, the neutral ones that don't do anything, they're either good or bad. Some estimate 99.9% of mutations are harmful or bad. That's a big problem for the theory of evolution because it hinges on the idea that those mutations are beneficial, that the trend is upward uh, genetically, not downward. Uh, the scientific evidence, though, uh, indicates the trend is the exact opposite. 99.9%, one in a, in a million. Uh, genetic mutations are spontaneous, chance changes which are rarely beneficial. The occurrence of beneficial mutations is rather rare. And that obviously makes sense when you consider the laws of thermodynamics, specifically entropy. Everything's wearing out. We talked about your car, your house, your body is an example of entropy. Second law of thermodynamics. Everything's becoming less usable, wearing out over time. The genetic trend is downward, not upward. That's in accord with the laws of thermodynamics. Deterioration destroys evolutionary theory. The trend towards de de deterioration is in keeping with the creation account. We would expect that God originally created the human genome pristine, perfect in the garden, but due to the fall in sin, in entropy, it's deteriorating over time. So Darwinism has no method... No mechanism, mutations are not the macroevolutionary mechanism for the theory of evolution. No matter how numerous they may be, mutations do not produce any kind of evolution. So genetic mutations are extremely random. Natural selection can't control them. They're random. They're extremely rare. Some estimates up to one and one billionth chance. And they're extremely harmful, 99.9%. .9%. the mutations that cause the greatest change the greatest uh, modifications are the most harmful and therefore most likely to not persist, to continue to occur. So what about the Bible and genetics? The Bible clearly teaches in the Genesis account, chapter 1, I had to look through this several times because I kept missing according to its kind. It's in there so much. Plants, animals, humans all produce according to their kind. And of course, the law of biogenesis that God instituted at creation, Galatians 6, 7, whatever man sows, that he will also reap. Jesus himself said in Luke 6, 44, For every tree is known by its own fruit, for men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from a bramble bush. And so now the second half of our study, I want to talk about the fossil record. If there is empirical evidence for macroevolution, that must be found in the record of the rocks. There should be proof of that, physical evidence of that. The evolutionary, macroevolutionary model would predict, uh, they say each of these layers are separated by millions of years. We don't believe that. But they would predict that the lower layers that are the oldest would have more simple life forms, fossils discovered, becoming more and more complex. And as you transition, there should be transitional fossils, what's often referred to as missing links, showing those change, the macroevolutionary changes. That's what macroevolution would predict. Creation would predict that you would have simple and complex throughout in the early on and at, at the top. That there'd be no missing links, no transitional fo fossils because macroevolution is not taught in the Bible. That there would be complex 
fossils, even in the lowest layers, the oldest layers, like the trilobite we're going to talk about here in a moment. And so without the benefit of today's technology, again, I mentioned this earlier, Charles Darwin could not recognize the problems his theory faced at the cellular level, DNA, genetic code. No concept of the things that we know today. But he did recognize at that time the issue posed by the fossil record. In fact, in his book, he says, Why then is not every geological formation and every stratum, those different layers, full of such intermediate transitional uh, links? Geology assuredly does not reveal any such finely graduated organic chain, and this perhaps is the most obvious and gravest objection which can be urged against my theory. But he was optimistic in thinking that they just haven't been discovered yet. Surely they'll discover it. Here we are, <laughs> over 150 years later, and there's still no missing links. The fossil record has been a complete and utter embarrassment for Darwinists. If Darwinism is true, the universe is billions of years old, there should be billions of transitional fossils, and we should be finding them. And yet the fossil record supports overwhelmingly special creation. There's not a missing link, there's a missing chain. <laughs> Quote here, No real evolutionist, whether gradualistic or punctuationist, uses the fossil record as evidence in favor of the theory of evolution as opposed to special creation. Can't do it. The absence of fossil evidence for intermediary stages between major transitions in organic design, indeed our inability even in our imagination to construct functional intermediates in many cases has been a persistent and nagging problem for evolution. All paleontologists know that the fossil record contains precious little in the way of intermediate forms. The extreme rarity of transitional forms in the fossil record persists as the trade secret of paleontology. You know, if macroevolution was true, we should see it in the record, the fossil record, and there should be a, a uh, proper arrangement that science should show us if it's been proven of the evolutionary process, and there is none. Talk about all the evolutionary trees that have been put forth. Here's a, a humorous example to illustrate that. Richard Leakey, who was a, a famed fossil hunter in Africa, he put forth his macroevolutionary uh, tree. His mom, Mary, put forth her own macroevolutionary fossil tree. His wife, Meve, put forth her own macroevolutionary tree. They can't agree on it. How could one possibly say that macroevolution has been proven when they can't even agree on the evolutionary tree? The evidence has not satisfied quite everybody. A few people who are not ignorant of the pertinent facts are nevertheless anti-evolutionist. A large number of well-trained scientists outside of evolutionary biology have unfortunately gotten the idea that the fossil record is far more Darwinian than it is. This probably comes from the oversimplification inevitable in secondary sources, low-level textbooks, semi-popular articles, and so on. I blame the internet. Also, there's probably some wishful thinking involved. In the years after Darwin, as advocates hope to find predictable progressions, in general, these have not been found, yet the optimist has died hard and some pure fantasy has crept into textbooks. So I want to talk and go back to the Cambrian explosion. We talked about those layers, and the Cambrian is towards the very bottom, the, supposedly one of the oldest layers. Cambrian explosion of fossils puzzled Darwin greatly. The emergence of complex creatures in the fossil record so late presented a serious problem that he recognized and admitted. Another atheist says, if I take the Cambrian explosion on its own, the logical conclusion I would draw is, wow, it was created. So you have this explosion of life forms bursting on the scene all at the same time at this lower level, and complex life forms. 
You have this layer, the Cambrian layer. Here's the Triassic, Jurassic, Cambrian toward the very bottom, pre-Cambrian before that with hardly any fossils, none transitional into the Cambrian period. In this Cambrian period, you have an explosion of all these life forms, many of which are complex all at once. And that puzzles macroevolutionists. It doesn't puzzle us. That's exactly what we would expect. After the flood, very few fossils before the flood. Some fossil graveyards as the result of floods. We've talked about dinosaur graveyards previously. And there's this line known as the great uniformity that we see all across the world on the lower end of the Cambrian age. Exactly what we'd expect as a result of the Genesis global flood of Noah. And above that line, we have an explosion of fossils. How do you explain that? Richard Dawkins, an outspoken atheist and macroevolutionist, we've quoted a lot, and we find many of them, speaking of these fossils in the Cambrian period, already in an advanced state of evolution. Complex, not simple. They should be simple going to complex, but yet we have the complex down here. The very first time they appear, it's as though they were just planted there without any evolutionary history. This is the guy that also hypothesized about alien seeding, planting life on earth. Needless to say, this appearance of sudden planting has delighted creationists. The Cambrian explosion was the most remarkable and puzzling event in the history of light. Not, not puzzling to us. And you have complex creatures in the Cambrian period, like the trilobite, which has gone extinct, which is a marine uh, fossil that had no less than four optical principles, complex optical principles in a system known as an optical doublet, and had these systems in place millions of years before our supposedly evolved eyes. How do you explain that? Existing before much more simple creatures that came after it. How do you explain that? So what about the missing links? Where are the missing links? That's the question. Darwin believed eventually they'd be discovered, yet they haven't. That'd be like saying uh, someone's guilty of murder without an admission, without an eyewitness, without a motive, without a weapon, without a dead body. Where are the missing links? Where's the evidence? Where's the proof? That's the question. And we should have a lot of it in terms of transitional links to humans because supposedly we're the last to arrive on the scene. Towards the top. More better preserved, not as old. Should be a lot of evidence. And we're more interested in those fossils. So we look harder for them. Where's the evidence for human evolution, the fossil record? There is none. In fact, there's so little, there's only a few memorable missing links that have been put forth over time and I want to <laughs> expose them to you, some of these examples, Neanderthal. You've probably heard of Neanderthals. Maybe, hopefully, you haven't been called a Neanderthal. Uh, but the dictionary at one time defined them as, as boorish, uh, dim-witted. I mean, we know the, the stereotype. And yet, when they discovered uh, Neanderthal in Germany, the anatomist that uh, discovered it and, and looked at it, researched it, basically said it was a man with rickets and osteoporosis. Another person looked at it several decades later and said it was just a, a person who suffered from arthritis. More recent discoveries have shown that Neanderthal and humans coexisted, lived at the same time. There's not uh, evolutionary uh, part of an evolutionary tree or process. In fact, they found fossils in caves in Israel of humans before, the date before, according to their dated methods, before Neanderthal. And so, uh, here, detailed comparisons of Neanderthal skeletal remains with those of modern humans have shown that there is nothing in Neanderthal anatomy that conclusively indicates locomotor, manipulative, intellectual, or linguistic abilities inferior to those of modern humans. Geico got it right. Right? 
so easy a caveman can do it. And the joke was that a caveman's not as dumb as you think he is. It's truth because he's a man, the human. So they've updated the definition, the Neanderthal human subspecies, not in scientific use. What about Nebraska man? This was a tooth that was found in the state of Nebraska in 1922. The London Illustrated News put this picture, they re- took some creative liberties, uh, of this single tooth, what this person must have looked like, and an alleged missing link was put forward. Do you want to know what Nebraska man is? A wild pig. It was a pig's tooth. The 14th edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica sheepishly admitted that a mistake had been made and that the tooth belonged to a being of another order. I love the quote by Dwayne Gish, a creationist, who said, This is a case in which a scientist made a man out of a pig, and the pig made a monkey out of the scientist. What about Piltdown Man? This is maybe the best. Uh, Piltdown was a discovery made in England in the early 1900s. They found a a skull, a jaw, and a tooth. Some of the most brilliant scientists and evolutionists in England were fooled into thinking this was a missing link. In 1953, decades later, that's how this often works, it was exposed as a forgery and a fraud. The skull was modern, the teeth, and the ape's jaw had been filed down and treated biochemically to make them appear old. You know what Piltdown Man is? A modern human skull a monkey jawbone, and a dog's tooth have been glued together. This isn't science, it's art. Anthropologists refer to the hoax as another instance of desire for fame, leading a scholar. And so they're saying, well, it's just, you got these paleontologists, and they're digging through rocks, and it's kind of boring, so we've got to spice things up, and we want money from these museums, so you've got to kind of, if you want fame and fortune, you've got to kind of fabricate these things. And then they boast that the unmasking of that deception is a tribute to the persistence and skill of modern research. Look, we've, we've exposed it. Persistence and skill indeed when they have taken over 40 years to discover the difference between an ancient fossil and a modern chimpanzee. A chimpanzee could have done it quicker. What about Orsman? This was a skull discovered near Ors, Spain in the 1980s. A symposium. A bunch of people were invited to a symposium to come examine it. You know what Orsman does? French experts said it was likely a four-month-old donkey. So Spanish authorities had to hurriedly send out 500 letters canceling invitations to that symposium, naturally. What about Rhodesian man? Skeleton found in 1921 in southern Africa of a family of maybe three or four people. The skull of the man was preserved. The man that ended up in a museum ran by, interestingly enough, someone who was involved in the Piltdown Man issue. He put a bird specialist in charge of reconstructing Piltdown Man. Why a bird specialist was put in charge of that, nobody knows. But he reconstructed him to look ridiculous with the, the, the knees bent in, the toe or the out, and the toes bent in. It wasn't until years later, when people who specialized in human anatomy looked at it, that it was determined to be a human. Nothing more, nothing less. What about Java Man? Discovered in the late 1800s, a person that discovered I think it began with a, they found a skull, maybe a tooth. Initial reaction was it was some type of monkey. You ever heard the expression, go with your gut? <laughs> uh, this would have applied. They later found a thigh bone, and it appeared to be like a human thigh bone, so an upright creature, and so they kind of put them together and thought, oh, this is a missing link. Well, it was determined that the tooth and the thigh bone were in fact human. The skull 
from a gibbon was, in fact, a monkey. And finally, Ida, pronounced Ida. You might have remembered this because it's more recent. This was when I was in uh, engineering school in Oklahoma State around 2009. Uh, took the world by storm. I mean, the media had a field day with this, made uh, Ida a, a, a star overnight. And uh, Google, the most powerful, popular search engine, the Internet, had this picture around that time. And supposedly this was one of your great-great-great-grandmothers 47 million years ago. And people, millions of people were reminded once again that we've evolved from lower mammals. You want to know what Eda is? You might can tell looking at it. You want to know what Eda is? It's not even our favorite lemur. Now that crown is worn by somebody else. Eda is a lemur. Her mother was a lemur. Her grandmother was a lemur. Her great-grandmother was a lemur. And you're not evolved from a lemur any more than you're evolved from a ladybug. So I want to look at a few quotes as we begin to close. What the record shows is nearly a century of fudging and finagling by scientists attempting to force various fossil morsels and fragments to confirm Darwin's notions, all to no avail. Today, the millions of fossils stand as visible, ever-present reminders of the paltriness of the arguments and the overall shabbiness of the theory that marches under the banner of evolution. It must be significant that nearly all the evolutionary stories I learned as a student have now been debunked. Science is not as empirical as many scientists seem to think it is. Unobserved and even unobservable entities play an important part, important part in it. Science is not just the making of observations, it's the making of inferences on the basis of observations within the framework of a theory. And the passage that keeps coming to mind when I study this, and especially the, the stories of those missing links, Romans 1, suppressing the truth for unrighteousness, there's a bias against God, there's, and the many... Macroevolutionists, the ones that are honest enough, have admitted, I don't want to believe in God. I don't want to believe that there's anything beyond nature because I don't like the implications. I don't want that to interfere with my sexual freedom. That's exactly what he's talking about. Professing to be wise, they become fools. And we see it happen time and time again. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. And we're warned, as Paul warned Timothy, to avoid science or knowledge falsely so called. You know, ever since Copernicus put the sun at the center of our universe. Many scientists have worked overtime in their efforts to diminish the role of humankind in the universe. As a result, we have gone from the crowning glory of God's creation to a hairless ape stuck on a small planet circling a mediocre sun in the distant reaches of an arm of a single galaxy that is one among billions of galaxies. And many macroevolutionists we've quoted talk in their writings about the luck that supposedly explains our existence. We're not unique. We don't have purpose. Man is viewed as neither occupying the center of the universe nor any prominent or preeminent place in creation. We're no different, they say, no better than any of the animals that preceded us. I want to give you some reasons why that's not true, some examples here, just a few of many. Number one, man is capable of speaking and communicating his thoughts through language. Man can improve his education, accumulate knowledge, and build on past achievements. Man is creative and can express himself through art and music and writing. We've seen some of those expressions tonight. Closely related to man's creative ability is his gift of reasoning. Free will capacity to make rational choices. Man has, lives by a standard of morality of right and wrong. Where did that come from? We possess a conscience. How do you express our conscience? And how do you exp uh, explain consciousness? How do you get consciousness in nature and in, in, in natural and in, in material things? That we're conscious, that we're aware that we contemplate, that we have memories. Where did that come from? 
Only man can experience and express heartfelt emotions. Man alone possesses a unique inherent uh, religious inclination. Uh, Ecclesiastes 3.11 talks about, he said, eternity in our hearts. The spiritual dynamic, where'd that come from? Man bears the spiritual imprint of God due to the fact that he possesses an immortal soul. You're not the result of something blind, brutal, random, pointless, accidental. Your children, these young children, are not an accident. Life's not pointless. You're not animals. We are created by God. And the purpose of God, and the mind of God, according to the purpose of God, you are created. Therefore, you have purpose. And you have meaning given to you by God. Whether or not we are specially created in the image and likeness of God has profound implications we've talked about and it has a tremendous impact on the fruit we produce. We've talked about that previously as well. Uh, the Columbine shooters wore natural selection shirts. There are implications. Survival of the fittest. Imagine living in a society where that's the, the, the selfishness is the universal law. Evolutionists even admit that's a very nasty place to live. No right, no wrong. No good, no evil. And if we teach people that all they are the offspring of animals instead of the offspring of God, as Paul said in Acts 17, 28, you're the offspring of God, we shouldn't be shocked when they begin to act like animals. We alone bear the image of God, and with that privilege in creation comes great responsibility and great accountability. And as we offer an invitation tonight, if you need to respond to the gospel, the good news, to be changed, to truly be transformed to something entirely different, to put off the old and put on the new, that's only possible in Christ alone. To be part of this community and the church and find meaning and purpose in your life. God loves you. You were designed by God. Before the, you were born, before the foundation of the world, God had a plan to redeem us, to save us, and the plan of His Son, the plan of the church. And you have purpose, and you can find that purpose and meaning in life who you are, whose you are, where you are, where you're going, all those questions we yearn to know and answer so much, you can find it in Christ alone. Be buried with Him in baptism, resurrected to walk in newness of life, something entirely, a new creation. Maybe you're here as a Christian, you are dealing with spiritual entropy and sin in your life, and if we can pray for you, encourage you, and support you in any way. If, if you're experiencing spiritual entropy in life, the only person that can undo that, the only person that can overcome that is Jesus Christ, God in Christ. He can do that. If sin is essentially... Man replacing God with man, and the salvation from that sin was God taking the place of man with God. And if you need to respond to that good news to the gospel, the Lord invites you to come as we stand and sing.